Our scripture this morning will be from Ezekiel chapter 37. Ezekiel chapter 37, we're going to begin with verses 15. You can find Ezekiel 37 on page 866 in your Bible. And you can see the subheading there is the reunion of Judah and Israel. Ezekiel 37 and verse 15. So Ezekiel chapter 37 and verse 15. The word of the Lord came again to me, saying, And you, son of man, take for yourself one stick and write on it, for Judah and for the sons of Israel, his companions. Then take another stick and write on it, for Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, and all the house of Israel, his companions. Then join them for yourself, one to another, into one stick, that they may become one in your hand. When the sons of your people speak to you, saying, Will you not declare to us what you mean by these? Say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will take the stick of Joseph, which is in the hand of Ephraim, and the tribes of Israel his companions, and I will put them with it, with the stick of Judah, and make them one stick and they will be one in my hand. The sticks on which you write will be in your hand before their eyes. Say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will take the sons of Israel from among the nations where they have gone, and I will gather them from every side and bring them into their own land. And I will make them one nation in the land, on the mountains of Israel. And one king will be king for all of them, And they will no longer be two nations and no longer be divided into two kingdoms. They will no longer defile themselves with their idols or with their detestable things or with any of their transgressions. But I will deliver them from all their dwelling places in which they have sinned and will cleanse them. And they will be my people and I will be their God. My servant David will be king over them. and They will all have one shepherd. And they will walk in my ordinances and keep my statutes and observe them. They will live on the land that I gave to Jacob, my servant, in which your fathers lived. And they will live on it, they and their sons and their sons' sons, forever. And David, my servant, will be their prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It will be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will place them and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. My dwelling place also will be with them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. And the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel, when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. So far the reading of God's word. Well, congregation, we continue to derive lessons for the church from Ezekiel's prophecy. The word, I should say, the words that God gave to Ezekiel the prophet, how it speaks to us continually in our own time, in our own place. And just to review with you, remember that we've seen from the book of Ezekiel God's call. Remember the vision that we saw in chapter 1 with the wheels and the eyes and uh, very uh, bizarre to us, and yet when it's understood, you can see that this was God's call to Ezekiel to bring his word to his people. 
We saw the, the presence of God, right, entering. Well, we saw it leaving the temple. But then we saw it entering the temple again. We saw the healing river flowing out of the temple of God. We saw it flowing. We saw it making alive and bringing fruit-bearing trees into a place in the Dead Sea Valley where there are no fruit-bearing trees. But the healing river. We saw the danger of false prophets. We saw the danger, the presence actually, of, of civil leaders, false shepherds, kings who are wicked and who did not protect and guard the people and lead them in God's ways. And I believe our last message from Ezekiel was God's provision of a new heart and a new spirit for his people. A new heart and a new spirit. Well, Ezekiel comes back to us again this morning, this time with a parable. In congregation, the parable that we're given this morning is an acted parable. It is not a parable that comes to us so much in words, but as actually we've come to expect now from Ezekiel, it is actions. He, 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 he does things which cause people to puzzle, right? And to, to wonder, what are you doing, Ezekiel? And then the, the, the actions that he's performing becomes an object lesson of sorts that he then uses to bring the word of God to the people Israel. And these are not lessons that Ezekiel comes, with, comes up with on his own. These are lessons that God himself tells Ezekiel to perform. So the parable, or this acted parable, that we're given here then is what I'm calling the parable of the two sticks. Because you can see in verse 16 that God tells Ezekiel, son of man. By the way, just a brief word about that, that phrase, son of man. Uh, because that word occurs very often in the book of Ezekiel. And very likely that, that title that God gives to Ezekiel, son of man, is simply emphasizing the difference between son of man, Ezekiel's humanness, his weakness, and God, who is the great king, the sovereign Lord. Uh, oftentimes you will read in Ezekiel the expression, the Lord God, uh, which is actually very accurately translated in the, in the New International Version of the Bible, the sovereign Lord, or the great king. In other words, it's a, it's a, it's a title putting God's uh, transcendence on display, right? It's, it's his, his, his glory and his majesty and his, how he's different from us. Whereas Son of Man is the opposite, right? Son of Man is putting the emphasis on our weakness, on our humanness. So Son of Man, in verse 16. And then to return to the parable here. Take for yourself one stick and write on it. And he is to write on it Judah. Then he's to take another stick and he writes on it Ephraim or Joseph. So you can see, congregation, that Ezekiel is taking these two sticks and he's writing on them the name that is given to the tribes that these names represent. Judah represents the two tribes in the south, the tribes of Judah and Benjamin. Ephraim, or Joseph, represents the two tribes, the ten tribes in the north. So those ten tribes in the north were often just called Ephraim because Ephraim was kind of the leading tribe of those uh, ten tribes. Uh, here they're also called Joseph because you'll remember that Manasseh and Ephraim were the children of Joseph. At any rate, Ephraim is the ten tribes in the north. Judah is the two tribes in the south. And now jo or, uh, Ezekiel has these two sticks. And now God says, and here's the object lesson, verse 17, join them together. 
Fuse them together, as it were. Join them for yourself, one to another, into one stick, that they may become one in your hand. And then, of course, verse 18 is the bewilderment of the people who look at Ezekiel. And, and in one sense, you, you'd think that they would say, Ezekiel, are, are you okay? What are you doing? Why, what are you doing with these sticks? Right? They, they would want to inquire. They would be very puzzled. This is a very bizarre thing for a, a man of intelligence to be doing. But again, God is behind this. God is teaching and telling Ezekiel to do these things. And so verse 18, when they asked, then this is the explanation. Verse 19, thus says the Lord God. And there you see that title, Lord God. And again, I, I love how the, the New International Version translates that. The Sovereign Lord. It gives us the, 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 the picture or the, the meaning of God's ultimate transcendence over all of creation. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will take the stick of Joseph, which is in the hand of Ephraim, and the tribes of Israel, his companions, those are the ten tribes in the north, and I will put them with it, with the stick of Judah, and make them one stick, and they shall be one in my hand. Now, uh, if there's one thing about these, these acted parables of Ezekiel, is that they are absolutely simple. Right? There, there's not a child in our congregation this morning who cannot understand that picture, right? These two sticks being joined together. Perhaps Ezekiel tied them together with a, with a leather cord or in some way he, he fixed them together so that they became one stick. And now God says, I'm going to take the ten tribes and I'm going to take these two tribes and I'm going to bring them together just as those two sticks. You see that in verse 21. Behold, I will take the sons of Israel from among the nations where they have gone. Now that's important to note, congregation, because the ten tribes are no longer there. They're no longer in Ephraim and Manasseh and Zebulun and Dan and Naphtali and all those other tribes, Issachar, right? They've all gone off into exile. The Assyrians, uh, by this time it was uh, 200 years earlier, the Assyrians had come down and swallowed up those ten tribes and dragged them off into exile. So that's, that's, that's long, well, I mean, you think of, uh, uh, even in our own time, right, 200 years back in our nation's history, it takes you almost back to our, our founding, doesn't it? So it's a, that's a long time ago in, in, these people's, in these people's minds. And you can imagine that it would come to their mind. Well, how's this even possible? I mean, those 10 tribes, for 200 years, they've been scattered abroad amongst the nations. How can God possibly even make a promise like this? But God says, I'm going to gather them up. Verse 21. From among the nations where they have gone, I will gather them from every side and bring them into their own land. Now, let's also recall that in chapter 33 of Ezekiel, so just before this prophecy took place, the two tribes of Judah had been conquered by the Babylonians. And you'll remember that messengers came to Babylon in the Kebar River and they brought news to Ezekiel. The city has fallen. The final destruction of Jerusalem has taken place and Nebuchadnezzar has burned the place to the ground. So now not only are the ten tribes who have been into exile for 200 years already, but now the two tribes, they also have been carried off into exile. And apparently there's nothing left of them. So again, you might say this is an impossibility. God says, I'm going to gather these nations together. And the people of Judah, the people who are listening to Ezekiel in the, in the, by the Kabar River in Babylon are thinking, it's not possible. 
But God says, I will do it. I will gather them from every side, no matter where they've gone. And I will bring them back. In verse 22, I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel. And one king will be king for all of them. They will no longer be two nations and no longer be divided into two kingdoms. They will no longer defile themselves with their idols. Now remember, that's what drove them off into exile in the first place. Their addiction, it appeared as an addiction to idolatry. They were constantly returning to idols. And that's why God sent them off into exile. But now God says, they'll no longer defile themselves with idols, verse 23, or with their detestable things, or with any of their transgressions. But I will deliver them from all their dwelling places in which they have sinned. All those places, all those, you might say, temples or high places or idols, uh, places where they'd set up their idols, God's going to deliver them from them and will cleanse them and they will be my people and I will be their God. And hopefully, congregation, you can recognize those, those words, right? They will be my people and I will be their God. That, that is the re-establishment of God's covenant between himself and his people. They will be my people and I will be their God. And then it goes further. In verse 24, my servant David will be king over them. Now, everybody, everybody remembers the high water mark of, of Israelite history was King David and King Solomon. But here, here uh, God gives this prophecy. My servant David will be king over them. And they will all have one shepherd. And remember, shepherd in those days was, was understood to be a king. They will have one shepherd. They will walk in my ordinances and keep my statutes and observe them. And where will they live? In verse 25, they will live on the land that I gave to Jacob my servant in which your fathers lived. And they will live on it, they and their sons and their sons' sons. And for how long? Forever. Again, read that word with me there in verse 28. They will live on it, they and their sons and their sons' sons, forever. And David my servant will be their prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It will be an everlasting covenant. And I will place them and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. God's temple, God's sanctuary will be there in the midst of that city. My dwelling place also will be with them. And I will be their God and they will be my people. There's that covenant formula again. God is going to establish his covenant with them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst, and here it comes again, forever, forever. So congregation, there's the parable. There you might say is the, is the meaning of those actions, of those two sticks that Ezekiel puts together. Now, how are we to understand this then? And before I get to point three on, on the outline there, how to understand this parable, just a few principles on how we are to understand prophecy in general. And these are some important things to keep in mind as we try to understand this, this, this prophecy and actually as we try to understand any prophecy. So in verse, in, uh, in the first principle that I've given you there then is the already and the not yet principle. And this simply means, congregation, that many of these prophecies have a, a, a more immediate fulfillment, partial fulfillment in the near future, but they have an ultimate fulfillment Later. And of course, this is the most obvious, right? When you think about the coming of Christ, he came the first time, 
And what did he say? He says, Mike, behold, the kingdom, he said, repent and believe the gospel. The kingdom of God is here. Well, the full kingdom of God clearly was not there yet, right? That was a partial fulfillment, right? It had begun. Christ established his kingdom in the hearts and in the lives of his followers. But then there was the full fulfillment, which we yet await, right? His second coming, when there will be no evil left. All sin will be purged from the world. So you see, even in the coming of Christ, that first coming, the already, right? The kingdom is already here. But also a not yet, a in the future, when the kingdom will come in its perfect perfection, without any trace of evil left. So also in this prophecy, we're going to see that some of it was fulfilled in the first coming of Christ. but Some of it we have yet to see be fulfilled. And it's not always easy, by the way, to, to untangle those different elements. The, the, the prophets would kind of uh, weave them all together into one prophecy. But now we, in our position in redemptive history, right, where, where we sit between the first and second coming of Christ, we see the separation, don't we? The prophets didn't see it so clear. So, that already and that not yet principle is an important one to remember when, when interpreting any Old Testament prophecy. But then also this next one, the new Israel principle. And that is, congregation, that when God makes promises to ethnic Israel in the, in the Old Testament, those promises are often fulfilled in the new Israel. In other words, they are given to the new Israel of God, consisting of Jew and Gentile. In fact, you'll know that Paul says, as many, as, as many of you as have faith in Christ are Abraham's seed. Well, of course he doesn't mean that ethnically, right? We, we are not of Abraham's seed. We are not Jews. However, when we believe in Christ, we are Jews. We are the new Israel. And the promises that God made to his people in the Old Testament are often then fulfilled to, his, to, the, to the church, to the new Israel, in the New Testament, all believers who have the faith of Abraham, even if they don't have the genes, if I can say, of Abraham. So the new Israel principle. And then last is the spiritual principle. Oftentimes, prophecies are made in the Old Testament in the language and using the ideas, the concepts, the pictures, the life reality, if I can say, of the Old Testament people. But when it comes to the New Testament fulfillment of that prophecy and of those promises, then there is a, it is often fulfilled spiritually. And you see that many, many times. We're going to see it in this prophecy. Uh, in fact, maybe it's best that we just go to the prophecy and you can see these things right in this prophecy here. So when we come to understand this parable, then we, we think to ourselves, first of all, uh, as many people do, as many good, good Christian people do, uh, they want to understand this parable, the, this prophecy, literally. And they do that out of respect for God's word. Now, I think that's a mistaken way to interpret the prophecy. But at any rate, we can look at this prophecy and we can ask ourselves, when did God bring back the ten tribes from exile and the two tribes from Babylon and reunite them again into one nation in Israel, with one king, no more idolatry and no more sin, and David is their ruler. 
and that that has now continued on forever and forever. I think you, you sense already that to understand the prophecy with that kind of literalism immediately fails, right? Because, because David did not come back to life to be the king over Israel. And to the best of our knowledge, to the best of my knowledge, the ten tribes are lost in history forever. We never hear from them again. Now God did bring the two tribes back and, and that a few of the ten tribes, individuals, may have found their way back to Palestine. I, I, I leave that alone. I, the Bible doesn't say. But in a one sense, congregation, the Bible doesn't seem interested at all in whether there was actually this reunion between the ten tribes and the two tribes. Why? Because it understands the fulfillment of that prophecy spiritually. Now you say, wait, 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 preacher. Now, now come on. And, and again, many people would say this. They would say, now you're stretching it, right? It says clearly there's going to be a reunion between the two tribes and the ten tribes. Now don't try to make that be something that it's not. Now I understand that, and I'm even sympathetic with that. I, I, I get that. We, we, we don't want to... Uh, you know, kind of bend the scriptures, right? But what we do also have to do, dear congregation, is we have to let the New Testament teach us how to interpret the Old Testament. How do the New Testament authors understand these prophecies? Especially, how did Jesus himself teach us to understand these prophecies? And that's why we can join with our, with our more uh, evangelical brethren, especially those who are of a uh, a more of an inclination to interpret this very literally, and we can say, listen, we, we, we respect the scripture as much as you do. At least we, we hope to. And, and we want to go to the New Testament and let the New Testament teach us how to understand these Old Testament prophecies. So this isn't our idea. We, we didn't come up with this method of interpretation. But we do this because the New Testament authors teach us to do so. So let's look at that then. And I gave you clear examples of this in, in Ezekiel 37, verse 19 through 22, we have this prophecy that God is going to reunite these two, the ten tribes in the north and the two tribes in the south. But when we go to the New Testament, and when we turn to Revelation chapter 11, uh, chapter 7, and if you turn there with me to Revelation chapter 7, and you see uh, even these, these subheadings are very helpful here, you see in verse 4, that subheading, the 144,000. And you'll notice that there's 12,000 from each of the tribes, from Judah, from Reuben, from Gad, from Asher, from Naphtali, and so on. And of course, 12 times 12 is 144,000. But then look at verse 9. Look at verse 9. After these things I looked, and behold a great multitude, which no one could count, from every nation, not just from the Jewish nation, from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands. And they cry out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And so on. They continue to sing their doxologies to the Lamb, to the, to the Lord. Well, congregation, I would suggest to you that there's every reason to believe that the 144,000 given us in verses 4 through 8 is the same multitude given us in verse 9. Now you say, well, that can't be, because in verse 9 it says, they're a multitude which no one could count. But in verses 4 through 8, they are counted. 12,000 from each tribe. Well, again, congregation, as we understand these things, 12,000 does not mean a literal 12,000. 
It means that they're all there. It means that there's a completion. There's 12,000 from the tribes of Reuben. That means all God's chosen people from the tribe of Reuben will be there. Not one will be missing. Not 11,999. Not one of God's people, not one of God's chosen people upon whom He set His love will be missing. Not one of those who has trusted in Christ and washed His robes clean in the blood of the Lamb will be missing. None from Asher, none from Naphtali, none from Judah, none from Gad, none from Benjamin. Not one will be missing. Great multitude. No one could count. We understand that to be the same group as in the previous. And notice that they come from every nation, from every tribe, from every people, and from every tongue. So who is Israel? And remember this new Israel principle. The people who receive the promises of God and the fulfillment of them are those 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel, not the literal tribes of Israel, but from every nation and all tribes and all tongues and all peoples. I hasten on to Ezekiel 37 and verse 23, where we are given the promise that they will no longer defile themselves with their idols or with their detestable things or with any of their transgressions. But we read in Revelation 21, verse 27. And again, you see here that this part of the prophecy belongs to that not yet part of the prophecy. It is not yet fulfilled. But in, verse 20, in, in Revelation 21 and verse 27, we read that uh, when the people go into the new Jerusalem, the new city, that nothing unclean, no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. So what is our fulfillment? What is the fulfillment that we look for of Ezekiel 37 and 23 and the prophecy that it contains? The fulfillment of that prophecy will be in the New Jerusalem when God will not allow anything that defiles to enter into His holy city. Ezekiel 37 and verse 24, we are told that my servant David will be king over them. And again, here even the most determined person to interpret this literally must stop and say, well, that has to be understood in a spiritual, in a symbolic way. My servant David, not the literal David, the son of Jesse, but the second David, the greater David. And if you'll turn with me to John 10 and verse 16, you see almost the exact words from that prophecy given us in Jesus' discourse on the Good Shepherd. When Jesus tells that parable of the Good Shepherd, he uses language that comes right from Ezekiel. And if you look at John 10 and verse 16, I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. Now, congregation, that, that, is, that, that is an allusion, a reference to our chapter in Ezekiel here. One flock and one shepherd. And so when, when our, our dear brothers and sisters come to us and say, well, you know, that must be understood literally, that that's going to happen in the millennium, in the 1,000 years, God is going to bring these two groups together again. We say no, because Jesus teaches us to understand the reunion of the ten tribes in the north, the two tribes in the south, as the union of Jew and Gentile in the church of Christ. That God will bring Jew and Gentile together into one flock. Now why do I say that? Only because Jesus teaches me to speak that way. Because Jesus says, I have other sheep which are not of this flock, not of this Jewish flock here. 
But I have Gentile sheep, and I'm going to bring them back. And then he chooses the words from our text in Ezekiel, and he says, I'm going to make them one flock and one shepherd. And that's going to be the fulfillment of what we read in Ezekiel 37. And what about Ezekiel 37 and verse 27? My dwelling place also will be with them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Now you must under, you must recognize that, right? That's, that's uh, repeated almost verbatim in Revelation 21 and verse 3, right? Revelation 21 and verse 3, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle or that would be the same word as what we have in Ezekiel, it's called the sanctuary. Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. Right? And in Ezekiel 37, verse 27, and I actually chose these words as the text of the sermon today, my dwelling place also will be with them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. So congregation, we see then in uh, we, we see then in these, in these verses here in Ezekiel's prophecy not a prophecy of a, of a return of the Jewish people to the land of Canaan. Now some of you say, well that happened actually in 1945. Well yes it did. It did. But this prophecy is speaking about something larger, something bigger. It's speaking about a, a, a reunion of Jew and Gentile and coming into the land where God is going to set them up. He's going to give them a new Jerusalem a new place to live, and he's going to live amongst them. He's going to cleanse it of all sin and defilement, and he's going to set his sanctuary in the midst of that city. And all 12,000 of his people are going to be there. From Kalamazoo, from Michigan, from Nigeria, from all places in between. Not one of them will be missing. And that's the beauty of this prophecy that we're given today. Well, congregation, that is the parable as we understand it. And I'm sure you have questions about that. Of course, I'd be happy to speak more with that. But I want to move now to make some practical applications because this, this chapter speaks so much, uh, dear friends, about the unity of Christ's church. And that's really what I'd like to focus on in these points of application is the unity of Christ's church. Because that's what we saw, right? We saw those two sticks coming together. And that wasn't Ezekiel's idea. No, that was God himself who said, I'm going to gather my people and I'm going to unite them in one land under one king. And so I want to ask in the first place, is unity important? Should we give thought to the unity of Christ's body and the unity of Christ's church? Now, I know that every one of us would sit here and say, well, of course, it's very desirable. We want to be a church family. We want to be bound together in love with each other and serving each other and helping each other, supporting each other. Yes, it's a very desirable thing. But congregation, our text this morning teaches us that this is what God is doing. That God is in the business of uniting His church. You might say, if I may speak reverently, what is on God's agenda? What is He hoping to do? Now, He, he does many things, we know that. But one of these things, given us very clearly in this chapter, is that it is God's goal, it is His objective, to unite His church. To unite Jew and Gentile, to unite male and female, as we read in Galatians, to unite bond and slave, right? You are all one in Christ Jesus, he says. And that is God's program, you might say. That is, on, that is what God is aiming to do. 
So when we ask the question, is it important? Well, congregation, the question answers itself, right? Because of course it is important, because this is what God is aiming to do. This is what our text is teaching us. This is what God is aiming to do. He is aiming to unite His people into one nation, under one king, one shepherd, one flock, one temple in the midst of that city. One, one, one. You see how God is, 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 is working that by His Spirit to unite His people. Paul says in Ephesians, or in, uh, I believe it's in Romans, make every effort to preserve the unity of the body, he says. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And so, congregation, in the first application, then, is it important? Is it important for you? Because we already know it's important for God. We already know that that is one thing God aims to do in this body right here, is to bring people together. And if that's not important for you, then you are at odds with the king of the church. My second point of application is, how does God do it? And we saw in our text this morning that how God does it is by setting one shepherd over them. He brings them together in one nation, one place. And how does he do it? By setting one shepherd, one king. And it's the greater David that he sets over his people. And so we can say then in the second point, dear friends, that our unity is bound up with the one shepherd who stands over this flock. Not me. You know that. The greater David. Jesus Christ himself. The great shepherd. And in, in him, we are bound together. Think about that now, friends. Think about what that means practically. Because I look out, right? And I see all of you. And now I know your names, right? And I see so and so and so and so. But congregation, as you look at each other this morning, do you see members of the body of Christ? Right? You can say, well, I know so and so. He's a good friend of mine. Right? And that person, well, I don't have much to do with him or her. She's kind of irritating. Right? Whatever we might think of different people. But I ask you this morning, do you see that person as a member of the body of Christ? And to do that congregation, you need to look at your own body. Right? You can see your own body, your hands, your feet, your head. Right? It's all one body and different members. And now we've, we've already understood that God is in the business of bringing his people together into one. And that's how we need to look at each other. That's how we need to look with all the different personalities that are represented in this room. All the different characters, all the different needs, all the different ages, all the different backgrounds and ethnicities of the different people that are amongst us. God is bringing us together. And it's important that if that's going to happen, we need to see each other as members of one body. And that God has set over this body, over this assembly here in Kalamazoo, Michigan, one shepherd. And that we are bound together in him. You know, we can often think, and brothers on the, on the council, right, especially this applies to us in, in a larger way, because we can think, you know, I, I, I like this, or I, I prefer this method, or I would, I, would, I would like us to make this decision. But how many times, brothers, and I press this upon you this morning, how many times do we sit down and say, what is the mind of Christ in this particular situation? And my friends, I mean that from the nursery to the council room, from the youth group, 
and all points in between, all of our life together as a church, what is the mind of the great shepherd who stands over this church and who binds us all together and who is in the business of binding us all together even closer? What is the mind of Christ in this, in this, in this situation, in this decision that we have to make? And to do that, congregation, we need to sit under the great shepherd's word. We need to hear his word. We need to know what it is and study it. Yes, I understand that you might prefer this or I might prefer that. But we work and we labor under one shepherd. And it is our earnest prayer. Is it your earnest prayer to know the mind of that great shepherd and to put that into practice here in this building? Congregation, I take you back to what we started with so many months ago. Well, not that many months ago, but right. Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. Is that your attitude? Is that your approach to all these things? Now, in the third place, just some practical directives. Congregation, I've already mentioned this first one, that our unity is in Christ. That, that is the foundation of all church unity. Not just that we must love each other or we have to work together. We must see our unity in the first place as united in that great shepherd who stands over this congregation. But in the second place, congregation, that question that we can ask ourselves Whenever we're working for the church, whenever we're laboring and toiling in the work of the kingdom of God, our what, is what we are going to do or what we are suggesting or what we are arguing for, will it promote the unity of Christ's body? Or will it break the unity of Christ's body? Now, congregation, there are times when we need to, we need, we need to break. There needs to be a separation. No question about that. I have this rather humorous story, but B.B. Warfield, maybe you heard the story before, B.B. Warfield once met the wife of the seminary president. B.B. Warfield worked at Princeton Seminary, and he met the wife of the seminary president. As she was walking down the street, he met her, and she says, oh, Dr. Warfield, I hear there is going to be trouble at the General Assembly. The General Assembly would be like the, the synod. What we call the synod, they call General Assembly. Do let us pray for peace. And to this he replied, I am praying that if they do not do what is right, there may be a mighty battle. Warfield understood that there are issues that are of the first importance upon which we must take our stand and which we may not compromise. And if people are going to drift from that, then we need to take a stand, even if it means the unity of the body of Christ is broken. Then we have to take a stand. But congregation, you know what I'm talking about, right, this, this morning. That there are a whole host of secondary issues, okay, upon which we have differences of opinion. And as we work and labor under the, under the, under the, under, uh, for the kingdom of God, it is necessary that we ask ourselves, is this something that is of such importance that I need to break and know that I'm going to break the unity of people in the church of God? Now, congregation, you may be right. You may be right. But there are times when even when you're right, you see it as a higher value to preserve the unity of the body of Christ and to let your very right opinion sit on the shelf for a while, perhaps. There are things that we must break. There are also things that we not. When people insult us, when people offend us, that is not an opportunity then to break the unity of the church and to go elsewhere. That is an opportunity to preserve the unity of Christ and to display the mind of Christ and to forgive each other. And to seek that forgiveness. 
May I be so bold, congregation, as to say your church's policy on how to deal with COVID is not a reason to break the unity of Christ's body. That's my opinion. I don't have a direct scriptural warrant for that, but I'm going to throw that out there anyway. I'm not saying that it would never be, but I'm saying that nine times out of ten. Your church's policy for dealing with the crisis like that is not a grounds to leave a church or to break the unity of Christ's body. Well, congregation, the third place there under that point is an era of outrage. And you know the day and age in which we live, right? It's a day when everyone is outraged. It's a day of taking offense, right? And we are the happy day, and I mean that entirely facetiously, when we even recognize such a thing as micro-triggers. The very word teaches us, right, that if it's micro, it probably shouldn't trigger us. Right? Why? Because our God taught us that charity, which is supposed to be in the heart of every Christian, love is not easily provoked. Love is not easily provoked. That means, congregation, that we should try hard not to take offense. The world teaches us differently, right? The world teaches us that just something as tiny as as looking at somebody cross-eyed a little is immediately grounds to assume the worst. But our God teaches us to think the best of other people and especially to think the best of fellow Christians. Congregation, we must do better on this. We cannot take offense at every little thing. And let's resolve. Let's resolve as a church family this morning not to take offense at things that come to us in emails or in text messages. Congregation, those things lack all the context that we have in direct conversation. And nine times out of ten, those messages were not meant to give offense. And yet we, we were too quick to take offense. And congregation, the very fact that we're so quick to take offense at different things like this is, a, is an argument for our own pride. And I speak to myself this morning. That when we are proud and when we demand that everybody respect us with the respect that we think we deserve then naturally we get offended when we don't feel that, when we don't have that. But congregation, the great shepherd who sits over top of this church and who binds us together teaches us to think differently and to put the best interpretation possible on the words that people tell us and, to, and not to take offense, even when perhaps an offense was meant to be given, even when we really are insulted. The grace of Christ our Lord teaches us to rise higher. Remember, congregation, when he was reviled, he reviled not again. Now, if you are a Christian, you have the Spirit of Christ within you. And when we are reviled, we are called upon not to revile again. Our culture teaches us that you're not a man if you receive an insult and you don't give it back double hard. That is not the Spirit of Christ, congregation. Young men, think about that. The courageous, the, 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 the big thing to do is to be able to receive an insult and to turn from it. Well, and the last point there is forgiveness. That when we do receive things that we know uh, are against us, that we don't receive well, that we be quick to forgive, quick to seek out forgiveness for when we have done it. And maybe we didn't intend to do it but still we seek out forgiveness. 
And congregation, what a happy bond then it is. Then it's like we had in our call to worship. It's like the oil that flowed down as it flowed down over Aaron's head and over his beard and over down his clothes. That beautiful, precious oil of the Spirit of God flowing over us as a body and binding us together and making us to be really a family that loves and serves and honors each other. Blessed are the peacemakers, Jesus said. You know what else God said in Proverbs chapter 6? In Proverbs chapter 6, in verse 16, there are six things which the Lord hates. And we should listen, congregation, when we're told things that the Lord hates. And one of them is, one who spreads strife among brothers. Just as I said, congregation, the Lord is working to bind us together, to unify us. So we can say that on the flip side, God hates the one who spreads strife among brothers. Now think carefully about that. And congregation, I love this quote. I've, I've had this quote in my mind uh, so many times. Uh, Richard Baxter said this. I have it on the bottom of your outline there. That if all the bishops had been of the same spirit as Archbishop Usher, so Archbishop Usher would have represented the Episcopalians, the, the ones from the Church of England. If all the bishops had been of the same spirit as Archbishop Usher, and all the independents of Jeremiah Burroughs, so the independents would have been all those people who didn't use Presbyterian government, like the Baptists and the independents, the Congregationalists and all those. And all the Presbyterians, that would be like us, all the Presbyterians like Stephen Marshall, the divisions of the church would soon have been healed. Congregation, are you, a, are you, a, are you an Archbishop Usher? Are you a Jeremiah Burroughs, a Stephen Marshall? These men who had... The, the courage and the strength to be humble and to seek the unity of Christ's body. They did that congregation because their Lord taught them to do it. They had their mandate from Him. Congregation, I also ask you to look this morning to the ultimate fulfillment of this prophecy. Because in glory, when God comes again, there will be no division. And all these people in this body that you see today, you'll embrace in Christian love and fellowship. And God will receive the glory forever and forever. Let us aim for that kind of unity here because we know we're going to have it there. May God bless these words to us. Let us pray. Lord, we do come before you to confess our sin in this regard. That we have not sought the unity of this body as you have taught us to do so. And Lord, as we, as we let this lesson from Ezekiel sink into our minds, we pray that the Spirit of God would write it upon our hearts, and that we, O oh Lord, would be quick to embrace our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. We pray, O oh God, that the body of Christ might exist here in a way that the light and the warmth of it would shine forth into the community, and that others, too, would say, Behold how they love one another, and that they also would be drawn to come and to put their trust in this great shepherd who brings his people together. And Lord, we do pray that if that day comes when we have to take a stand on an issue of the first importance that we cannot compromise on, Lord, give us courage also to do that, even then, in a humble and self-denying way, and to refuse to compromise with the principles of this world, which teaches us to live in quite a different way. Lord, give us also that charity, that love in our hearts, 
that is not easily provoked. Please hear our prayer, Lord. We ask all these things knowing that we can only receive them as gifts from your Spirit. And so work these things in our hearts, O Spirit of God, and make us to know and to love our Savior and to live for him and to walk in his fear all the day long. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen.